Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. 2021 is almost over, and it's been an eventful, action-packed, wild, and really without exaggeration, probably a historic year in Israel. Uh, Just as a reminder, this time last year, Israel began its world-leading COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, In the early spring, the lockdown ended and the economy was reopened. There was a fourth election in two years in April, a Gaza war and domestic riots in May, uh, a new and unlikely government in June, and with that, obviously, the end of Bibi Netanyahu's long, long reign over Israeli politics. Uh, There was a reset as well in relations between the U.S. and the Palestinians. And in more recent months, uh, Iran deal talks have resumed and normalization with several Arab states have deepened. Um, And I think that's only a partial list, really. So to look back on what happened over the past 12 months and to try to make some sense of it all, we're going to be handing out our first annual Israel Policy Pod end of year awards. Uh, Everybody can feel the excitement. Uh, But really, to help me do this, I'll be joined today by two of my colleagues who you all know well, uh, Israel Policy Forum's Chief Policy Officer Michael Coplo, coming to us from Washington, and Shira Efron, who is an IPF policy advisor, as well as a senior fellow at the Institute for International Security Studies here in Israel. Michael, Shira, welcome. Thanks, Nari. Thanks, Nari. So as I mentioned, we're going to be handing out our first ever end of year awards today. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to be making some uh, some predictions uh, for the coming year. So without further ado, we're going to get into it. Uh, Drumroll, please. The first Israel Policy Pod end of year award is for the biggest surprise of the year. So as I mentioned, a lot happened uh, throughout the course of 2021. Uh, none of which really we could have necessarily predicted. Uh, so I'm going to go first, and then I'm going to hand off to Shira and Michael to give their awards for biggest surprise of the year. Uh, but for me, I think the first and most obvious surprise would be that Israel was able to uh, to form a new government uh, after the fourth election in the spring. And really, they put an end to the Netanyahu era. Uh, I don't think anybody or any one of us, uh, after the results came out, uh, after the election, when it was looking like yet another deadlock and yet another election, likely, uh, I don't think any of us could have predicted that these disparate parties and actors and politicians uh, spanning the gamut from the pro-settler right, the pro-peace left, centrist parties, and even for the first time ever, an Arab-Israeli party would all come together uh, in the narrowest of narrow coalition governments and really agree to all sit together in the same government and to hand the prime ministership to Naftali Bennett, really, uh, with his six or seven seats. Uh, So that was really a big surprise. And really, I think uh, coming in the middle of the year uh, dictated a lot of what what came after uh, over the past, say, six months. So that's my pick for for the biggest surprise of the year. Uh, Shira, what what about you? What do you think was the biggest surprise of 2021? Well, Mary, you obviously took the, the biggest one, and <laughs> granted, we're talking about this this you know region here, and not like January six events on Capitol Hill. I I guess I would say, and it's related to what you to the formation of the new government, which wouldn't have been possible. But I think 
a really big story there is the Ram, an Islamist party, a branch of the Islamic movement, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, northern branch of that movement is basically a legal organization in Israel. You know, the the, the chief, uh, Sheikh Raid Saleh, just, just uh, uh, got out of Israeli prison uh, mm-hmm. this week. Uh, they're sitting in the government <laughs> and in the coalition with budgets. And this is not just a, an Arab Islamist party. It has also an agenda that's very conservative, if you will. And they're sitting with, with their, you know, with an LGBT uh, health minister, non-married transportation minister. So people that they really have like ideological divides overall for um, uh, better integration of the Arab population. Uh, Palestinians of 48, 21% of the Israeli population uh, into the society and economy uh, in ways we haven't seen even when we we started seeing a, a better trend of integration and joined Arab Jewish initiatives, but actually coming from the Islamist party, I think this is a big, big, big uh, event and surprise of the year. Right, I agree. We should just clarify that while Ram is definitely an Islamist party, an Arab-Israeli Islamist party. They're affiliated with the southern branch of the Islamist movement. It's like the twin sister of the northern branch. Uh, but you're right. Uh, this has never happened ever before in Israeli politics, uh, arguably an earthquake and definitely a surprise. Right. Uh, and I'll just add to this. Sorry, just, it is important to say there's a lot of tension between the northern branch and the southern branch, and, and they're under extreme pressure uh, from their sort of sister movement, also from the Arab public, going for a trend for integration. Also, they're under pressure from some extreme branches in the Israeli right. Uh, so mm-hmm. very bold leadership here on the part of Mansour Abbas, the leader of Rome. Right. A huge gamble, a surprising gamble. Uh, Michael, what do you think was the biggest surprise of 2021? Those are those are both great choices. And, and I like that you guys highlighted not just that BB is gone, but some of the things that we're now used to seeing have started to seem normal when they didn't seem so before. Uh, you know, certainly the inclusion of an, uh, an Arab-Israeli party in government, the fact that Naftali Bennett is prime minister, despite the fact that he only controls six seats in the Knesset. Um, so you, got, you guys hit on great stuff. I'm going to go in a different direction. I actually thought that, that Shira maybe, maybe was going to go in this direction. So I'm glad she didn't. Um, I'm going to go with the, the main war between Israel and Hamas, not because fighting between Israel and Hamas is, uh, is a surprise, but it had been seven years since there was a real war between those two sides. And the thrust of Israeli government policy under Netanyahu really had been this idea of quiet for quiet, and then increasingly ignoring non-quiet on the Hamas side in return for quiet from Israel anyway. Um, and it almost seemed at the time as if uh, there was this weird equilibrium where uh, you'd have some balloons and some sporadic rocket fire and Israel would take some measures and it would go away and, and it sort of ebbed and flowed within uh, a very constant, predictable frame. And the fact that you had this outbreak of real fighting for the first time in seven years. Again, not something that you're ever going to rule out, 
Um, but I don't think it was necessarily obvious that the two sides were going to resume real hostilities the way that they did, uh, particularly given that on the Hamas side, nothing fundamental had changed about its situation. And certainly, you know, the organization took advantage of some of the things that were going on in Jerusalem, undoubtedly, uh, but there wasn't a, a huge event that precipitated it. Uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list that as my surprise of 2021. Right, that's a great choice. Uh, I don't think anybody would have predicted uh, an escalation right then and there in May. Uh, the Israeli uh, security establishment and the intelligence apparatus uh, was saying that Hamas wasn't quite interested in a war as recently as a few days before. Uh, Hamas chose to fire rockets at Jerusalem. Uh, so yeah, that's a great choice. Uh, in the past, we've we've seen Hamas escalate for economic reasons. Uh, in May, they escalated arguably for political reasons, uh, having to do with Jerusalem and uh, inter-Palestinian politics. So right, that was a uh, a surprise and also dictated uh, a lot of the summer, um, as we all uh, were watching and observing and and analyzing what was happening. Um, we're going to shift to our second award. And this is one that's slightly different. So if we're talking about surprises in 2021, I'd like to shift and give an award to the most uh, underappreciated story or issue of the year. Uh, a story or an issue that, you know, perhaps a lot of people weren't following or didn't fully appreciate, but that you think uh, deserves more attention and, and, and did actually influence things over the past year. Uh, so, Michael, we're going to start with you. What do you think was the most underappreciated story or issue of the year. I'm going to give this award to the rise and stabi stabilization of the religious Zionism party, Hatzionut uh, Hadatit. This is a party that uh, is comprised of the remnants of Jewish home, Habayri Yehudi, Naftali Bennett, Nayela Chaked's uh, former political party, and Kahanists led by Itamar Ben-Gvir. And when Netanyahu, way back um, at the beginning of the, the, the never-ending four, four election cycle, when Netanyahu forced a merger between uh, Jewish home and uh, Otsma Yehudi, Jewish power, the Kahanists, it caused this big controversy uh, because Netanyahu was normalizing Kahanists in the Knesset. And here we are now with this party that is sitting in the Knesset. In every single poll, it is gaining strength and will have no problem making the Knesset again whenever the next elections are. And even more importantly, I think, than making the Knesset, it is starting to drive much of the sentiment and attitudes and policies on the Israeli right. You know, we've seen the effective, despite the fact that he's prime minister, the the effective cratering of Yamina in terms of its support uh, among the Israeli right. And a lot of that has been captured by the religious Zionism party. And this is a very extremist party on all sorts of fronts, from their attitude toward the Temple Mount, um, to their attitude toward illegal outposts, towards their their attitude toward toward the IDF, even just in the last mm -hmm. couple of days, we've seen a lot of violence from uh, the more extremist settlers against the IDF. And 
that kind of attitude isn't uh, it's not it's not an outlier within the religious Zionism party. It's it's sort of squarely where it where it is. And so I think that um, not enough people are paying attention to the fact that this party is really capturing the settler right and more and more of people who are considered to be the mainstream in the settler right. And that's going to make the settlement movement more extremist over time. Right. Uh, that's a good point. And I think uh, the religious Zionism party uh, uh, arguably is, is trying to portray itself as, as the real pro-settler party after the quote unquote betrayal by Naftali Bennett and Yamina and uh, Bennett's uh, running mate, Ayala Chaked. Uh, so it's very much that Bennett, uh, maybe he doesn't see it this way yet, uh, his base of support, his traditional base of support on the settler, pro-settler right, uh, they're not happy with him. They're not happy with him. Uh, after he cut the deal, uh, quote-unquote, with, with the left and the Arabs to, to form this new coalition government. Um, Shira, what, what's your pick for the most underappreciated story or issue of the year? I'll take it, I guess, the other side of the green line. I think um, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, Palestinian president, uh, gave a speech at the UN. I mean, it was a pre-recorded speech, the UN, in September this year. Mm -hmm. Speech that was easily dismissed by people in Israel. Another speech, another empty threat of the Palestinians. But I think we should pay attention to what he said. And I think that in hindsight, we might believe that this was an underappreciated moment. Um, he said it's basically that he's giving Israel a one-year ultimatum that he's ready to work throughout this year uh, on solving, I'm paraphrasing, but all final status issues. Right. But if this is not achieved, and here I'm quoting, he said, why maintain recognition of Israel based on the 1967 borders? They're saying, we remain committed to all of its elements, whereas Israel has not honored its obligations. And, you know, as... IPF is an organization committed to a two-state solution, trying to achieve a two-state solution, but we are very aware of the, of the uh, barriers to achieving a two-state solution. I think that's one of the enablers of a two-state solution. What we thought is, was working for a two-state solution was a Palestinian leadership that's still committed to it. Right. And I think that hearing such messages, given that, you know, there was also fighting in Gaza and the balance was supposed, at least according to Israeli statements, to change and not reward Hamas with... Uh, or, to, or to strengthen Abu Mazen and the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, and I mean, and we can speak about there, there are some steps that are being taken, but he is also um, referring to, him, to, to these uh, steps um, in his... Um, in his speech, and he's saying presenting illusionary economic and security plans is an alternative, which is the policy of this government. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we lose the support of this leadership um, in a two-state, you know, support for a two-state solution, we're doomed. Um, and I hope it's not foretelling, but I think it's an underappreciated moment here. Right. Uh, I think that's a good... That's a good choice because uh, Abbas's speech at the UN uh, was very underappreciated and very uh, undercovered. Uh, it was portrayed as kind of more of the same rhetoric, but uh, it's definitely worth flagging uh, and definitely worth uh, at least paying attention to. 
Um, my pick for most underappreciated story or issue of the year, I'm going to piggyback slightly on what Michael said, uh, where he highlighted the religious Zionism party, this far-right party led by uh, Betelel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. And uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, we should say, uh, a Kahanist uh, through and through. Uh, fascist Jewish faction of the religious Zionism party. Uh, I think the most underappreciated aspect of what happened after the fourth election in the spring and just ahead of the new government uh, being formed is the fact that this uh, far-right party essentially cost Netanyahu a coalition government. Uh, Because we should remember that coming out of the election, Netanyahu had first crack at forming a government and he was trying his utmost to bring in Mansour Abbas and Ram and this Arab Islamist party uh, into some kind of coalition with uh, with Netanyahu's Likud and the ultra-Orthodox and this far-right religious Zionism party. And at least in Netanyahu's mind, he, he, he had that option on the table. And when he came to re- the religious Zionism party, to Smotrich and Ben-Gvir, they wouldn't have it. And they said no to Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu tried to apply massive pressure through various uh, settler rabbis in the West Bank and Jerusalem to have the the political party, religious, religious Zionism, come at least tacitly agree to to this coalition with with the Islamists. Uh, and Smotrich and Ben-Gvir still said no. And that essentially opened the path to Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett to come together and form this you know, very unlikely coalition. Uh, and what we've seen since that moment is both Netanyahu and the Likud and the ultra-Orthodox party and essentially the almost entirety of the Israeli right uh, agree with religious Zionism. Uh, I was at a, a rally, uh, a right-wing rally in Tel Aviv a few weeks ago, uh, organized by Likud and endorsed by Netanyahu. Uh, not too many people showed up, uh, we should say, maybe a 1,000, 2,000 people, which isn't that much, uh, in the heart of Tel Aviv. Uh, but their entire messaging was that we want a Jewish government back in power, a Jewish government back in power. Uh, and they highlighted the fact that this government, this new government led by Bennett and Lapid, uh, is dependent on an Arab-Israeli party, uh, something that Netanyahu himself wanted to do. Uh, and so I think uh, it's very telling to my mind that uh, Netanyahu, after floating this trial balloon of, of a coalition at least tacitly supported by an Arab-Israeli party, uh, seems to have learned his lesson or is trying to unlearn the lesson that he tried to introduce to Israeli politics and he's trying to kind of uh, go back on what he himself was willing to to at least countenance back in the summer. Uh, and I think, you know, it shouldn't be understated that this was an earthquake in Israeli politics, as, we, as we've mentioned, as Michael very much highlighted, uh, that an Arab-Israeli, a proper Arab-Israeli party has never really uh, been part of an Israeli coalition government. Uh, remains to be seen uh, how that works out, but Smotrich and Ben-Gvir of religious Zionism understood what Netanyahu uh, failed to understand, uh, which was that this is a real earthquake in Israeli politics and and opened the door really for the Israeli center and left to come back into power. So that's my pick. Uh, award number three. The winner of the year. This is this is a big award. It's a big award. Uh, I'm going to go first, if you both don't mind. Uh, and my choice for winner of the year is Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, who is the head of the centrist Yeshatid party. Uh, Lapid is also the alternate prime minister uh, because he essentially 
was the architect of this new coalition government. And coming out of the coming out of the uh, election, uh, Lapid had the second largest party, Yeshatid, uh, and he was given a second crack at forming a government after Netanyahu failed. Uh, and what he did, I think, unprecedented, really, uh, in Israeli history, but maybe in, in uh, international politics, which is that he essentially forfeited uh, the prime ministership to to a, a much junior partner. Uh, Lapid made Bennett an offer that Bennett uh, maybe could have refused, uh, but didn't refuse, which was, uh, you get to be prime minister first, uh, despite the fact that you have just six and seven seats uh, in, in parliament, in Knesset. Uh, and I'm willing to to cede that to you. Uh, we're going to have uh, kind of an equalized and balanced uh, government and cabinet, uh, despite the fact that the numbers are heavily tilted in in Lapid's favor just on paper. Uh, but I think that Lapid uh, Lapid did what he he set out to do, which was uh, to topple Netanyahu and to to come back uh, into power. Uh, first as foreign minister, and then maybe in 2023 as prime minister. Uh, and I think back to, to an interview I, I did with Lapid himself a few weeks before the election in the spring, and there was a long interview uh, published in Foreign Policy magazine, and he basically said, you know, look, uh, my goal is is to, quote-unquote, win the election, to end Netanyahu's long reign, uh, but really to save Israeli democracy from what it's becoming and what it's turned into under Netanyahu's long reign. Uh, and I think undoubtedly uh, the fact that he succeeded in doing that uh, makes him the winner of 2021. Uh, Michael, your pick for winner of the year. I am going to go with Benny Gantz. Oh. Yeah, I know, surprising. <laughs> A year ago, Benny Gantz was stuck in a coalition that he had formed with Netanyahu, but it was increasingly clear that the prime ministerial rotation that he had been promised was not going to happen. He was increasingly being embarrassed and disparaged by Netanyahu and folks in Likud. And when the fourth election happened after that coalition broke up, and you had this block that was forming to oust Bibi, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion that Benny Gantz was was going to emerge from that with very much power, given that he had uh, blown up Kacholavan, the, the blue-white party, uh, mm-hmm. after the third election by forming a government with Netanyahu. And yet uh, his, his, former, his former partner, Yair Lapid, uh, accepted, him, accepted him back. He didn't really have a choice if he wanted to form a government, but uh, accepted him back. And Benny Gantz is now ensconced as defense minister, a position that he is going to keep if the prime ministerial rotation from Bennett to Lapid happens. Um, and his political fortunes actually are, are, are not bad. If you, if you look in the polls, Kacholavan... Uh, does as well, if not a bit better than uh, than it did last time. And so Benny Gantz looks like he's going to be around to stay. And not only that, he has, as defense minister, an enormous amount of power and authority, of course, over, over the West Bank and, and uh, what's going to happen there. He's obviously going to be uh, one of the most influential, if not the most influential voice when it comes to uh, dealing with Iran and how Israel is going to proceed. 
Um, and he's also found himself all of a sudden extremely popular overseas because in the United States, the, the, the Biden administration views Gantz as someone who is responsible and wants to do the right thing. We, uh, we saw Gantz uh, go, go abroad uh, to, to Morocco and uh, have, have a successful visit with the, uh, with the Moroccan defense establishment. Um, and so, you know, for a guy who everybody was disparaging and who a year ago was uh, really on the cusp of um, losing, losing his shot at prime minister, you know, uh, he actually seems to be doing pretty well for himself, uh, all things considered. So uh, I'm going to go with Benny Gantz. Right. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair choice uh, for winner of the year. Uh, I think Gantz would agree with you too. Uh, just <laughs> FYI, Michael. Uh, Shira, your choice for winner of 2021. I mean, Lapita was an obvious one. I, I think, I, well, I have to actually. No, but I'll go first. I think really Mansoor Abbas, the leader of Rome, mm. Um, I, I, I think we really underestimate the heroic, heroism it, it took from him to do what he did. Um, by the way, he negotiated with Netanyahu, and Netanyahu was the one that cleared the way for Ram joining the party. It was Smotrich, the you know, the basically vetoed it. Mm. But you know, joining the coalition, being attacked. Uh, by his own base, if if we can call the base, but also by the by 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 the Arab big parts of the Arab um, population, in Israel, and the leadership and the public, being being, I mean, attacked in the Knesset by Smotrich and others that tell him he's a Islamist terrorist, um, and still going. You know, now we don't know if he's the winner of the year, right? Because he has to succeed. It's like almost right if. If he doesn't succeed, he will cease to exist. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's that dramatic. But it does look like he's on the right path, I must admit. Uh, you know, Mike Goodman, Micha Goodman is also the winner of the year because he seems to be the most influential person here on the mindset of Israeli leaders with uh, shrinking the conflict. Um, whether he wanted this uh, to have this position, whether this was his inspiration is just astounding i think to me that you have these israeli leaders many of them uh some of them less experienced some of them more experienced but including you know former chief of staff a defense minister that are going to basically are getting their guidance and ideas for strategic thinking from a spiritual leader i think uh <laughs> He's definitely in, 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 you know, it's it's a different it's a different category because he's not an official position, but I think he acquired a certain status this year that I wouldn't have expected. That's a great. Um, that's a great pick. I I agree. It's a great pick. And just to uh, remind our listeners, Micha Goodman is a a Jewish philosopher uh, and now a political philosopher, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Catch Sixty Seven, which was all about how the both the right and the left uh, need to give up on their ideologies or delusions, he calls it, and to embrace a more centrist path that uh, that advocates for not resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but shrinking the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, and Shira, you're right. Uh, he he's now known as the court philosopher of Naftali Bennett. Uh, also, I heard it firsthand from Benny Gantz. Uh, he's arguably uh, the the most influential. Uh, public intellectual uh, 
uh, in Benny Gantz's mind. So uh, Micha Goodman is a, is a great choice for, for 2021 because you're right, uh, the new Israeli government has adopted this paradigm of shrinking the conflict. Uh, where that takes them and what policies they actually enact, I think, remains to be seen uh, in 2022. Um, so all good choices for winners of the year. Uh, our final award, uh, award number four, is for loser of the year. Uh, now, the ground rules, because uh, I'm hosting this podcast, is that Bibi Netanyahu is ineligible uh, for loser of the year. Uh, I think we we explained uh, at the top enough about uh, the fact that he was finally toppled from power after 12 straight years as prime minister. Uh, we should remind our listeners that uh, this didn't need to be the case, that Netanyahu, uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, had a government last year after election number three, uh, the deal he cut with Benny Gantz for this national unity government, and uh, Netanyahu chose to blow up that government late last year and go to yet another election. Uh, this was a gamble that he thought would pay off, that he could finally get a parliamentary majority and be sole prime minister and possibly pass laws to extricate himself from the ongoing corruption trial. Uh, but none of that happened, and he lost that gamble. And that after election number four, uh, this new coalition somehow came together and Bibi is now opposition leader. Uh, so I think uh, he's a clear loser of, of the past year. Um, Neri, can we, can we choose members of his family? Is, 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 I just want to make sure I understand the ground rules here. Uh, I mean, I think it's a package deal, no? The Netanyahu's all come together. So okay, so all Netanyahu's are off the table. I think all Netanyahu's are off the table. Uh, they recently lost their uh, security service privileges and drivers. Uh, so yeah, I think they, they also feel like they've, they've lost a lot, uh, in recent months. So I think that's, that's off the table. Um, but, uh, yeah, loser of the year, uh, Shira, do you want to go first? I mean, Mary, you're like hosting this podcast and you're, you're making all these ground rules and then you make me go first on like the negative one. I don't know how I like that. I'll tell you because I want to be positive. Um, I, it's hard to say. There are probably a few. I, and, and still, right, the jury is still out. But I'd say maybe that this year started with a great promise for his own constituency uh, of Gidon Saar, you know, the mm -hmm. promised child of Likud. He was courageous enough to break from Likud, right? Arguably uh, paving the way also for the formation of this new government. He thought he was going to be prime minister. He thought he would, you know, have all Likud supporters follow him. Um, and where he is now in polls is that he's not, his party is not going to even pass the threshold uh, if elections were to be held today. So I think in that regard, I mean, he was uh, a persona known granted by the Netanyahu's. And he's, you know, minister of justice. Uh, it's, it's a role he really wanted, but um, but he's not the political promise that he was uh, when he was still in Likud. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll give this yeah. sad award yeah. to Gideon Sauer. Right, and he, he is, uh, I think, the lowest in the polls uh, just right now in terms of just a snapshot of the current environment. And, and you're right, I think a year ago, almost to the day, is when he broke from Netanyahu, he broke away from the Likud, started this uh, this faction, uh, New Hope, uh, 
And while he he did play an integral role in toppling Netanyahu, uh, I think he he had higher hopes for what he could become and what his party could become when he when he made that dramatic move a year ago. So I, I think that's not an unreasonable choice uh, for loser of the year. Uh, Michael, what about you? Shira and I are in the same same wavelength here because that that was going to that was going to be my top choice. So um, mm. I will I, I will go with with my next choice, uh, which is the Haredi leadership. Um, the Haredi parties were you know have been known as Netanyahu's natural partners, and uh, when he was booted from the prime minister's office, uh, they lost their power as well. And it didn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, they had tied themselves to Netanyahu in um, in a uh, almost unreasonable way, and so uh, his his fallen fortunes uh, were their fallen fortunes. But it isn't only about the politics. I think that um, we've also seen, in a lot of ways, the Haredi leadership their stranglehold over over their voters and their constituents is starting to break. We've seen some Haredi voters move toward uh, other parties, um, such as such as religious Zionism. We have seen um, during the pandemic uh, there there has uh, there has apparently been uh, an increase in uh, Haredi use of uh, of unfettered internet. Um, oh, there no. is uh, <laughs> there's a uh, there's a new regulation that the communications minister minister Yoaz Hendel is pushing that will uh, basically and the practice of, of having these uh, these kosher these kosher phone numbers, um, where uh, you get a phone number that's been effectively approved by the Haredi leadership, but then you can take it with you uh, to to another phone service uh, so that they can't track you, which is something that uh, has not been allowed up or possible up until this point. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we've seen really that the, the Haredi leadership doesn't even seem to have the same uh, cachet and power within their own circles. As they have before, let alone within politics writ large. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I think I think it's been a pretty a pretty bad year if you're a uh, if you're a Haredi leader, and um, I don't I don't see that changing anytime soon. Right. I think it's maybe the only the third time in the past maybe thirty or forty years that the Haredi parties, or at least Shas, the Mizrahi Haredi party, uh, isn't in power, isn't in government. Uh, so it doesn't happen too often, and, and this is where they find themselves today, uh, in opposition, along with Netanyahu and the Likud, uh, essentially railing uh, at the people actually wielding power right now in Israel. Right, and I think that's that's such a good and important choice, but it's also like, it's not clear to me what the strategy is, if they want to be part of the coalition, even if not this coalition, but they seem to be doubling down on what they're doing. I think it's, I think it's only getting worse. Uh, I think they... You know, for our for our older listeners, quote unquote older listeners, uh, they can remember a time. We can remember a time where Shas was part of the uh, Labor Itzhak Rabin government in the 1990s, passing, you know, passing uh, peace deals. You know, so it's and now they're essentially a hard right party, uh, Shas and Yedut uh, Torah, the Ashkenazi. Uh, Haredi party. Uh, also, we should mention, you know, if we were talking about Netanyahu and his gamble, uh, Arya Derry, the head of Shas, uh, was a quote-unquote guarantor of the Gantz-Netanyahu government last year after election number three, where he came out publicly on primetime television and said, 
you know, of course, Netanyahu will uphold the deal with Gantz. Uh, I will, I will see to it. I will make sure of it. And if Netanyahu doesn't uphold the deal, then I will go with Gantz. Uh, Netanyahu didn't uphold the deal. Uh, he blew up the government, and yet Derry uh, stuck with Netanyahu. Right, and and just to you know add on top of that, even their behavior in the opposition, you know, has compounded. I, I think their initial political mistake, where uh, once Netanyahu was leader of the opposition, he declared that Likud was going to boycott Knesset committees, and he somehow convinced the Haredi parties to go along with him. Um, and so, even in the Knesset, where traditionally the opposition has at least wielded power in committees and had some you know real oversight over the government, you know, at least to make the government squirm a bit. Uh, the Haredi parties went along with this with this odd, self-defeating <laughs> committee boycott. Uh, and so even what little influence they'd be able to have sitting outside of government, they've, they've kind of ceded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty hardline strategy. Uh, but again, in line with Netanyahu, they haven't broken. Nope. Uh, my choice for loser of the year uh, is Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Now, I'll hedge a little bit and say that for Abbas, I think personally, uh, 2021 was a great year because he outlived politically uh, both Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu. So Trump and Netanyahu are long, no longer in power, and yet Abbas uh, continues to chug along. So I think for him personally, that's a that's a victory. But overall, I think Mahmoud Abbas had a very tough 2021. Uh, the year started, as we all know, with with real talk of uh, Palestinian elections being held, uh, at least for the parliament, uh, for the first time in, what, 15 years. Uh, and he issued a decree in January, uh, basically saying that elections would be held uh, in May. And then on the eve of uh, the real campaign starting in April, uh, he canceled them. He canceled them, which... Uh, was odd since he went down this road and, you know, voters were registered and parties were formed and his Fatah party even had a chance to squabble amongst itself and divide itself. Uh, And so that was an odd choice. Uh, And then in May, obviously, he was sidelined during the Israel-Hamas war uh, over and from Gaza. And you had uh, Palestinians in both Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, as well as in the West Bank, uh, out on the streets chanting uh, Mohammed Def's name, the Hamas military commander's name, uh, prominently, right? Uh, so he had that to contend with. And then to make matters worse, uh, a few weeks after the war ended, uh, Abbas's uh, intelligence service, uh, for an inexplicable reason, went and arrested and then killed a prominent dissident uh, in Hebron, uh, Nizar Banat. And that drew a whole bunch of rightful condemnation uh, on the PA and the leadership and the security services from uh, the United States and the Europeans uh, and civil society all over all over the world, as well as in, in Palestine itself. Uh, and then uh, to top that off, uh, he's run into difficulties in recent months just financially. So the Palestinian Authority is facing a severe budget crunch, uh, both due to the COVID recession, pandemic, and lockdown as well as donor money drying up. Uh, a lot of donors, both in the Arab world and in Europe, are essentially fed up with the leadership in Ramallah. Uh, and so he's facing a very difficult uh, winter season to come out of it on the other end, hopefully, uh, with renewed budgetary support, primarily from the Europeans. 
so it hasn't been a great 2021 just in terms of policy uh, for Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, to my mind, the, the decision-making uh, coming from his inner circle uh, is, has left a lot to be desired. Um, it really raises a lot of questions in terms of the quality of the decisions coming out of uh, the Mukata presidential compound in Ramallah. So that's my choice for uh, the loser of the year. Uh, predictions. Predictions. Uh, predictions in this part of the world, as we all know, uh, are not worth the paper they're not written on, uh, to paraphrase uh, our friend Amos Harel. Uh, so we're going to make slight predictions, right? We're not going to go all in, uh, but we're going to make uh, some predictions in terms of what we we think is likely to happen um, in the coming year. Uh, I'll go first. That's okay. Um, I think, unfortunately, that 2022 will see increased violence in the West Bank uh, between Palestinians and settlers. Uh, and, you know, we've seen an uptick in, in violence in recent weeks. Uh, there's a they don't they don't call it a, a new wave of terror, but there has definitely been an upsurge in, in terror attacks. Uh, we saw one deadly one last week, a shooting attack in the northern West Bank that took the life of one of one Israeli. Uh, so we've seen uh, Palestinian violence uh, rise in recent weeks, uh, and we've also seen settler violence uh, massively rise over the past year. Uh, violence uh, by settlers against Palestinian civilians, uh, in some cases against uh, IDF personnel in the West Bank, and so unfortunately. Uh, I think that will that will continue, and it's something to keep an eye on, not just in terms of of the reality on the ground in the West Bank and and just violence and loss of life and oftentimes uh, injury and, and loss of property, uh, but strategically, I think that these isolated incidents, whether a, a major Palestinian terror attack or a major settler attack or this kind of cycle reprisal violence, where you have a a, a, a Palestinian terror attack and then settler reprisals and vice versa um, could really lead to an explosion. Uh, and I think it behooves all of us to, to keep an eye on that um, and that it, it even more behooves the Israeli authorities, starting with the, the IDF uh, and Defense Minister Benny Gantz and the, the Israeli police led by uh, Omar Barlev from the Labor Party uh, to, to get a grip on it, to get a grip on, re on, on violence on the ground emanating from both sides. So that's my prediction for 2022. I, I wish I could give you better news. I wish I could say that peace would break out, but uh, that's my that's my prediction. Michael, what about you? Well, I would love to predict that uh, I'll actually make it to Israel in, in 2022. <laughs> 2021 is the first year that I haven't been in Israel in uh, in a decade. Um, but that may you know that that may be going too too far out on a limb. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll I'll go out on a, on a limb that that maybe is maybe is is almost as far. Um, I, I, I'm going to predict that uh, by the end of 2022, Nir Barkat is going to be the head of Likud. Um, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, pushing pushing the envelope a bit here. Um, yeah, you know Netanyahu, of course, still has uh, a hold over Likud. He's he's there as chairman of the party and and chairman of the opposition. But you know, it's become pretty clear that uh, being being in the opposition. Uh, is not fun, of course, uh, and that Netanyahu uh, doesn't really seem to like it. Um, he seems to be kind of bored. Um, and when you throw on top of that 
that his trial is still going on and uh, he has legal fees that are going up. And uh, I'm certain uh, that his home life at the moment is uh, is not that great. Uh, and the fact that he could, you know, he could quit politics. And uh, you know, it was reported recently that uh, Larry Ellison uh, offered him a spot on the Oracle board. You know, he could quit politics and, uh, and make um, huge piles of money immediately mm-hmm. um, for not doing very much. Um, you know, it does. And he's, he's, how old is he now? 74? Um, you know, it, uh, 73, 74. Mm-hmm. It does raise the question as to, as to how much longer it's worth it to him to stick around, uh, particularly now that the budget has passed and, and the coalition looks to be a bit more stable than it was a few months ago. Um, and when you look at Nir Barkat, you know, he's someone who I think would have been the front runner to take over from Netanyahu anyway. Um, but in the last couple of days, polls were released demonstrating that uh, Likud under Barkat will do uh, almost as well as it would under Netanyahu. Uh, and more critically, Likud under Barkat um, would uh, would bring a bring a path for Likud to a, to form a coalition again. Um, right. So I think that you know that will not only give Barkat uh, a headwind. I think that there's a chance it might increase some of the grumbling within Likud and some of the pressure on Netanyahu to leave and, and give somebody else uh, an opportunity. So I will go with that prediction. That is a very strong prediction. Uh, by the way, we should mention Nir Barkat, the former mayor of Jerusalem, uh, also a, a high-tech uh, mogul that made a lot of money uh, in that sector, uh, oftentimes viewed as this kind of mini BB, new age BB. Uh, he also has a uh, served in a, a lead combat unit in the IDF, uh, speaks relatively good English as well, uh, similar to Netanyahu. So uh, that is that is a wild pick, uh, but I like it. I like it. Shira, what's your prediction for 2022? Yeah, uh, oh, it's hard. I really generally prefer to avoid predictions. I can tell you what's not going to happen. <laughs> it'd probably be easier to it'd probably be easier to detail what what will definitely not happen in 2022. Yeah, I wouldn't put my money, let's say, on re- reopening of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem in 2022. Ah. But I will say, I guess this is sort of a prediction. I, I maybe it's a little bit cheating because we are seeing seeing the trend now, but it's the same with the settler violence. Um, after the round of fighting um, in Gaza in May. Um, we heard from Israeli officials across the political spectrum that what was will not repeat, which referred to basically uh, for the, in the name of quiet, maintenance of quiet from Gaza, um, you know, transferring funds directly, by the way, from Qatar to Hamas, also working on some economic projects and the idea of we will, you know, give some, some some sort of measures for quiet. And we heard from Israelis, no more. First of all, we're not going to give anything to Hamas. Hmm. Going to strengthen the PA in the West Bank instead. And unfortunately, when we're talking about these two uh, entities and the two physical entities, right, Gaza, West Bank, still we're talking about a zero-sum game in the current political reality, Palestinian political reality. Um, and also that instead of Qatar, an actor that supports Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, um, we will bring in uh, the Emiratis and other new friends of Israel and, and 
potential friends in the future, like Saudis, and they will substitute Qatar and Gaza. And I think my prediction would be that not only uh, you're going back to the same exact situation that was before the May escalation, it's actually going to grow much more. We're going to see more and more uh, things going into Gaza, some sort of prioritization, if you will, even uh, of Gaza uh, in the name of achieving quiet. And I think, you know, I'm a big supporter of quiet in Gaza, quiet for Gaza. I'm also a big supporter of economic development of Gaza because there are 2 million people there. There are going to be 3 million people in 10 years. Uh, So you can collectively punish the, the population, but, you know, it is a short term thinking what is the long-term strategic goal of this to have Hamas you know you want to strengthen Hamas um Israel has not clarified what it's trying to achieve but I I I I suspect that I predict I guess if that in 2022 we're going to see more in Gaza that we uh had thought and what we were made to believe based on statements of officials interesting so your prediction is not only has the current Israeli government taken the same approach to Gaza as the previous Netanyahu government, but that the new government in Israel will, will actually deepen that policy and go even further. Yeah. And you see, Ayur Lapid came out with, with sort of a plan for Gaza. Now, at the moment, it's it's not much of a plan. It's, you know, a paper. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's like reaching understandings if you will, the previous policy, trying to reach the same previous the previous approach, but on steroids. Um, so it's a public document by you know Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, alternate Prime Minister. Uh, but we're seeing it also along you know along the chain of command. There is a, uh, an objective to for quiet from Gaza. Uh, Right. Do more, do more. And if you look at the data, you are already seeing that more things are go- items are going into Gaza than before. But I think we're talking about goods. It's not just that. You're seeing also the the Palestinian, they call the merchants going out of Gaza. There are not that many merchants in Gaza collective. These are laborers. They're coming to Israel to work here. Um, you're seeing it already, and it's. I think it's just going to grow. Right. 10,000 uh, permits for Gazans to now work in Israel, uh, the largest amount in since arguably Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007. Yes. Uh, Okay, I like those predictions. Uh, We're going to shift finally to our recurring segment called Curation Corner. Uh, As I've said in the past, uh, there's a lot of content out there. So what we like to do in this segment is to recommend uh, a piece of content, whether an article, a book, a movie, it could be anything really, uh, that we think our listeners should check out. I'll go first, and I'll recommend for my piece of content uh, a recent article by uh, our friend David Patrikarakos, a British-Greek journalist and writer and author, Uh, and he wrote a really interesting uh, profile of the new Iranian president, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, uh, for New Lines magazine. Um, This is just a really tremendous article uh, about a person who they call the Butcher of Tehran, uh, and David weaves together in biography and reportage uh, and even his own family history uh, on his mom's side. Uh, she came from a family of Iranian Jews uh, who had to flee the country uh, for the UK after the 1979 revolution. Um, so I highly recommend this article uh, in New Lines magazine. Uh, and as David writes, uh, Ibrahim Raisi's life 
is also the story of the Islamic Republic. And so you understand the former uh, and you can understand the latter. So really interesting article about Iran and the Jewish community in Iran and the current Iranian regime, as it were. So that's my pick uh, for Content Corner. Michael, what do you have for us? I have got a piece that uh, our friend Shalom Lipner wrote for the Atlanta Council uh, called Doing It His Way, How Naftali Bennett Could Beat the Odds and Wind Up Transforming Israel. Um, and in the piece, Shalom argues that uh, Bennett is, is racking up all sorts of achievements, but that they aren't going to be... Um, they aren't going to be fleeting, that, uh, that you see in it, uh, as he writes, traces of, of transpo- transformative potential uh, for Israel's domestic politics and foreign relations. Um, I'm not sure that I actually, I, I'm not sure I, I, I buy the argument entirely. I think that you know, we've seen mm. that institutions are uh, a lot weaker than we expected uh, in Israel and the U.S. and around the world. And so... Um, you know, Shalom lays out uh, a lot of a lot of great great data and facts on how Bennett actually is changing things. You know, the question for me is whether these changes really really will be um, irreversible or or, or sort of uh, difficult to dislodge. But you know, he makes a strong argument, and uh, and I, I would urge everybody to read it. It's a great choice uh, by Shalom uh, Shira. What do you recommend for our listeners? Um, you know, I'll recommend something that was actually published in March, but it was just won an award, so I think it's worth uh, mentioning again. Um, it's a day in the life of Abed Salame um, by Nathan Thrall, which mm-hmm. was now uh, named one of the best features of 2021 by Long Reads. He published originally in the New York Review of Books. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's so depressing, but it's you know it's about a father, one father, uh, journey quest to find his son after a terrible um, car accident in the West Bank. And, you know, just, I guess for me also as a parent to young children, it just starts with this beautiful young boy going with his father to buy, you know, kinder chocolate egg. I don't know if our listeners know them, but, you know, it's something, it's a treat for going on a field trip with his class, right, bus, and then, it is it's gut wrenching um, story. Just about the accident, but about bureaucracy. Right the the, the bureaucracy of the occupation. The bureaucracy of the occupation and how it hits you know a person at really the hardest moment of their life. I mean, I, I tell you how it starts, not how it begins, but it's also just like beautifully written and you know I think I think it's a must read. So highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, thank you for that article uh, by Nathan Thrall in the New York Review of Books. Um, I think that's all we have. Uh, it's a good time to end this podcast and also end this year. Uh, Shira and Michael, I thank you uh, for your awards and predictions. Uh, and we also should thank uh, Jacob Gilman, our colleague who produces this podcast. And I'd also like to thank all of you uh, who support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast. You know who you are. And just remember to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, and finally, uh, to everyone celebrating, have a happy and healthy Christmas and New Year's holidays. Uh, Be safe out there. And we'll be back with more podcasts here in early 2022 for what will undoubtedly be uh, another eventful year in Israel policy. Thank you both. Thank you, Nary. Thanks, Nary.